Friends Church in Portland. Guy Davis is an American blues guitarist, banjo, and harmonica player. The singer-songwriter has stated, Folk music was the doorway I came into the blues from, and I want people hearing the song to know life is precious and the road is not always an easy place to be. Mary Flower will open the show, bringing her finger-picking and slide guitar-style blues to the PFS stage. That's Guy Davis and Mary Flower performing on Friday, March 15th at 7.30 p.m. at the Reedwood Friends Church, 2901 Southeast Steel Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. Hello, good evening, and welcome to Poetry and Everything. I'm Judith Arcana, your KBOO host. KBOO Community Radio is in Portland, Oregon, USA, and you, you, you could be anywhere on this planet. Dartmoor, Kansas City, Caracas, Lahore, Bukavu, you could be anywhere listening with us. Each month, guests who care about poetry join me to read and talk about poetry and everything. We generally open with the host, me, reading a bit of my own work, then the guest and I read work by other poets, and that's what we'll do this evening. The one that I'm going to read, the Judith poem for this show, is um, included in a collection called Announcements from the Planetarium. A book of mine came out in uh, 2017, and it's rooted in growing from the film Harold and Maud and the novel that preceded it. In fact, I dedicated this poem in memoriam to Colin Higgins, who wrote the novel and the movie with Ruth Gordon and Bud Court. I bet that a lot of people in the States know that one. The title is but you may call me Maud. Maud came to me in a dream. Really, she was sitting at the kitchen table. She was steeping a small pot of oat straw tea and had baked a little ginger pie in my toaster oven. She came, she told me, because she heard me say I wish her hair had been white in the movie, like it was, you know, in the book. She said, oh, but think. Just think about those people out in Hollywood. It was rough, a struggle every day. And Ruth looked good, didn't she? Even with those bronze-brown braids, she never, not for one single minute, looked young. Everybody could see her real skin. You can bet that was a battle. I asked if she'd use bigger numbers now, since people are living longer. Then she'd riffed on it. I'll be 80 next week good time to move on. 75 is too early. 85, you're just marking time, all that. So now, I asked her, how about maybe 90, 95? I wanted to know. Truth is, she said to me, there should be no numbers. Numbers are generic. Like the daisy scene when Ruth shows Bud each flower is unique. Numbers aren't really useful. Everybody's got to decide. Think about what's going on inside you, body, mind, and outside, too, the world. Look at it all. That's how you know when. Okay, 
That's it for me this evening. Um, now I would like to introduce our guest for this show. Our guest for this show is Wendy Willis. Wendy Willis is the author of two books of poems and a collection of essays. She's the founder and director of Oregon's Kitchen Table, a program of the National Policy Consensus Center in the Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University, and the executive director of the Deliberative Democracy Consortium, a global network of organizations and scholars working in the field of deliberation and public engagement. I love that phrase. <laughs> I wish there were lots more deliberation and public engagement. Her book of essays, These Are Strange Times, My Dear, came out, isn't that a great title, people? Think about it. Um, came out this month. Her most recent book of poems, A Long Late Pledge, is currently, as you are listening, currently a finalist for the 2019 Oregon Book Award. Raised in Springfield, Wendy now lives in Portland with her family. Welcome, Wendy. Thanks for having me, Judith. Oh, thanks for joining us. A pleasure to have you here in the studio. So now we're going to read the poems by other poets. Yes. What have you got for us? So I have two poems. Um, it was a hard decision. Of course, uh, always. Which poems to bring. Right. Um, but I brought um, poems by two poets, one which may be slightly better known than the other, but both who passed away last year. Ah. Um, yeah, we took some hits last yeah, year. Yeah, we did. That's for we sure. We did, and I feel like the you know, as the older I get, the more my, some <laughs> my mentors are are leaving are leaving us. Absolutely, I know just what you mean. So um, the two I brought, one was is by the poet C.D. Wright, um, who who I'm sure you may know, and the yes. other is by another poet named Bridget Peggy Kelly. Oh, of course, yes, great. And, Please and read we, to us. And we lost both of them last year, so I'll read mm -hmm. the C.D. Wright poem first. Um, okay. This is actually maybe one of the first poems I really knew well of hers, although, uh, and and I know that there's there's many book-length poems of hers that are incredible, mm -hmm. but they're not really, it would take the whole would radio take, program. Right. <laughs> we couldn't do that. <laughs> to, read the, to read the whole thing. We'll have to do that on our own. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I'll read this poem called Everything Good Between Men and Women <laughs> All um, right. by C.D. Wright. And um, I think this poem might be on the Poetry Foundation website, so you might be able to find it um, there. Everything good between men and women has been written in mud and butter and barbecue sauce. The walls and the floors used to be gorgeous, the socks off-white and a near match, the quince with fire blight, but we get two pints of jelly. Long walks strengthen the back, you with a fever blister and myself with a sty. Eyes have we and we are forever prey to each other's teeth. The torrents go over us. Thunder has not harmed anyone we know. The river coursing through us is dirty and deep. The left hand protects the rhythm. Watch your head. No fire should be unattended. Especially when wind, each receives a free Swiss army knife. The first few tongues are clearly preparatory. The impression made by yours I carry to my grave. It is just so sad, so creepy, so beautiful, bless it. We have so little time to learn so much. The river courses dirty and deep. Cover the lettuce, call it a night. O oh soul, flow on. And uh, good one, good one, thank you. So what and are you gonna read? Do you want me to read my second one? Um, yes, please, go, okay. go, go right <laughs> ahead, go right ahead. Um, and this poem, um, Again, she uh, Bridget Peegan Kelly writes longer, sometimes writes longer poems. Um, there's a poem called "The Song," which might be her 
most famous yeah, poem. Yeah, kind of thing you find in your um, curriculum guide. Yes, and right. it's quite long, and it's a little brutal for her. And so mm-hmm. I thought I would read one that's in her, um, kind of uh, in that same um, sensibility, but not, not quite as arresting, maybe. The Satyr's okay. Heart. Okay. Satyr as in the mythological creature, the satyr. Yes. The satyr's heart. Now I rest my head on the satyr's carved chest, the hollow where the heart would have been if sandstone had a heart, if a headless goat man could have a heart. His neck rises to a dull point, points upward to something long gone, elusive, and at his feet the small flowers swarm, earnest and sweet, a clamor of white, a clamor of blue and black, the sweating soil they breed in. If I sit without moving, how quickly things change. Birds turning tricks in the trees, colorless birds and those with color, the wind fingering the twigs and the furred creatures doing whatever furred creatures do. So and so. There is the smell of fruit and the smell of wet coins. There is the sound of a bird crying and the sound of water that does not move. If I pick a dead iris, I wave it above me like a flag, a blazoned flag, my fanfare, little fare with which I buy my way, making things brave. The way now I bend over and with my foot turn up a stone, and there they are, the armies of pale creatures who without cease or doubt so the sweet sad earth mm. nice or not nice but reality <laughs> as yeah. the case may be yes. yeah okay um even though i haven't been a teacher for a long time i was a teacher for a very long time and this poem which is by tom wayman called did i miss anything was sent to me by a colleague who is still a teacher, a college professor. So thank you, Susan Amison, down there in California. I'm reading this poem you sent me because it's great. Mm. So here's Tom Wayman, folks. Did I miss anything? Which is, of course, a question frequently asked by students after missing a class. (laughs) Nothing. When we realized you weren't here, we sat with our hands folded on our desks in silence for the full two hours. Everything. I gave an exam worth 40% of the grade for this term and assigned some reading due today on which I'm about to hand out a quiz worth 50%. Nothing. None of the content of this course has value or meaning. Take as many days off as you like. Any activities we undertake as a class, I assure you, will not matter, either to you or me, and are without purpose. Everything. A few minutes after we began last time, A shaft of light descended, and an angel or other heavenly being appeared and revealed to us what each woman or man must do to attain divine wisdom in this life and the hereafter. This is the last time the class will meet before we disperse to bring this good news to all people on earth. Nothing. When you are not present, how could something significant occur? Everything. Contained in this classroom is a microcosm of human existence assembled for you to query and examine and ponder. This is not the only place such an opportunity has been gathered, but it was one place and you weren't here. Isn't that That's great? awesome. Right. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I had never even heard of this guy before mm-hmm. Susan sent me the poem. Yeah, where's he from? So, 
please. I put it in my file. I didn't bring it with me, but I'll look it up, folks, I promise. Or yeah, you can look it up. Can, yeah. Tom Wayman, W-A-Y-M-A-N. And you know, even if he never wrote another poem, this is good enough right People, there. Po- teachers should post it on their bulletin board. Oh, absolutely. And I believe many are doing that very thing. Okay, so now it's time for me to say... As I did at the very beginning, this is KBOO, Portland Community Radio. Welcome. Um, If you are just joining us, glad to have you here. Sorry you missed the beginning, but, of course, you can listen to it online. Tonight, we have a special announcement, and here it is. Barbara LaMorticella will receive the very first Soapstone Bread and Roses Award which honors a woman whose work has sustained the writing community. And this is going to happen in March, Women's Month, Women's History Month. Barbara is being recognized for her decades of hosting Talking Earth, which is, of course, probably the oldest poetry show on KBOO. And she did that show and is still, in a different way, doing it now for literally decades. Um, The numerous readings that she organized, the magazines and anthologies she edited, a whole lot of stuff. She will receive the award at a Soapstone board luncheon on Women's Day, March 8th, 2019. So because this is a poetry show, because I know Barbara, because I was on her show, because she's so excellent in so many ways, I wanted to insert that little bit of that announcement for Barbara. Good for you. Good for you. Congratulations and wonderfulness. And now we go on to the regular, <laughs> the regular scheduled broadcast. Wendy is going to read to us. She's going to give a reading for us right now. Please. Thank you. That's great news about Barbara. Isn't like, that wonderful? Yeah, it's one and of the. It's f- very cool that they they created this award. It's very cool, and it's one of the first places you just. It's like you could listen to you could listen to poetry being read to you, and it was so. Um, nurturing in a way so oh, yeah I'm so I'm so pleased to hear that yes. I did not know that that's good news so I'm going to read um four poems and they I'm not sure how I picked them but they felt <laughs> like they were the right poems for for that, tonight and that's how you pick them <laughs> um, so the first one I'm going to read um is in this book a long late pledge that came out at the end of last year or the end of I'm sorry the end of 2017 um and it's called writ of habeas corpus. So mm-hmm. I'm a lawyer. So there's some lawyer terms in here, but you know, writ of habeas corpus is you know produce the body. So mm-hmm. it's a way to get people out of prison um, sometimes. And um, when we're lucky. When we're lucky. And I, um, it's one of the places where um, one of the uh, Abraham Lincoln actually suspended the writ of habeas corpus during the Civil War. Ah. So, so when we talk about Lincoln being the great, you know, one of the great right. liberators, the great every, everybody, yeah. um, everybody has their their limits, and that that was that was his. Yeah. Um, and so this actually has nothing to do with Lincoln, but it's it's a <laughs> <laughs> but it's called writ of habeas corpus. Love in this republic has small habits, rising like yeast in midsummer spreading red from the tip of a tent needle, but I know enough to ask, is prophecy more conjure or conjecture? Answer slow. The wind is a well-trained dog. The sunset is the work of a thief. The price of liberty is the color of algae, but the earth stops turning in the hour between dishes and pie. Even the house guests avert their eyes. The kitchen throws off its own weather, hovering between tenderness and complaint. Now my indiscretions tend toward the botanical. 
hothouse and florid, wicked but too fragile for cross-examination. I know the key is buried in a shallow pit. Once I saw a photograph of a wounded rabbit, a lethal plastic cone over its tiny wild face, mm. the dark mercy of a hairless murmuring beast, no wind off the river, no grass underfoot. Oh, wow. What an image, Wendy, that rabbit. Wow. The rabbit. Mm. So now I'm going to read a couple poems. Um, uh, there's lots of animals in these poems, I realize. <laughs> I'm like, I could do all the animal poems, but um, I'm going to read from another book called Blood Sisters of the Republic. And this is about um, a few years when my kids were pretty little, because they appear quite small in this, in this um, poem. We had a house finch, you know, the red with a red breasted house finch that would come and knock on our dining room window, like <gasps> tip, 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 tip. On a regular basis? Oh, yeah, for a Whoa. whole season. And we had no idea what this house finch was doing, uh -huh. and we still don't know. And then, you know, then it went to the backyard, I guess, with all the other house finches to eat off the bird, the birdhouse. But for a, a, a whole season, it was, um, it was trying to tell us something, and we were very poor at figuring out what that was. Um, so this poem is about that house finch, and it's called House Finch Returns to Chastise the Household for <laughs> Its Late Winter Lassitude. We know by now that children no longer learn cursive. They loop along fine with sans serif and V's broken free from their E's. It's a topic for a tisk tisk, a chance to recall our hallowed days. Who, we ask, will decipher the missives of poets and philosopher kings? Meanwhile, that chiripity bird with its heart stained on its breast has its own set of opinions. But I'm not sure they're worth a continental. It's an all-out racket, an unplanned tell-it-to-me-brother-amen. I know it's bunk, but I can't help but think twice about girls budding breasts too early and boys bedding down in the desert. Hmm. Why, of all the unholy households in this republic, did it choose this one to chastise? Is there so much to mistrust because last fall's caterpillars still curl in the jelly jar? Because we can't call our ghosts by name? There must be legions of them. For our defense, we've settled on this. It's a force majeure, a plancure, the, certain, the certitude of wars that won't end. We've given ourselves over to sugar ants and mid-afternoon champagne. The furrows are fallow. We may, be as, we may as well beat prams into plowshares now, with the president and his milk-skinned men coiled at the ready while our one curvy girl curling on my lap but too big to fully fit twists cruelly the tales of g's and y's practicing for roll call and roadhouses and rolls we have yet to name ah spring fine bird surely can't be that far off now for i am fretting about the long-legged nature of things tilting one pink ear for answers disinclined to go on hmm. When a speaker says something like disinclined to go on, <laughs> the reader thinks, oh, what? <laughs> I thought we were together here. <laughs> That's enough of that. Yeah. Um, so this, this next poem is also from that, um, from, the, from the book Blood Sisters of the Republic. And uh, my father's a mathematician. And um, I, shall we say, am not. <laughs> <laughs> Neatly put. <laughs> and, yes. um, and so when I, I wrote this poem, and it's actually about the Pythagorean theorem, uh -huh. and 
you know, I don't, I'm not sure whether he read the book, but he must have because afterwards and he's comes and sits down with me at the kitchen table at my parents' house and draws it out again. Like you still don't understand it. (laughs) And um, I have a picture of the Pythagorean theorem up on my bulletin board, my office from, from my is still yet to be drawn by him by him yeah yeah yep and he was like he's on the case you still don't get it (laughs) 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 which is kind of basic i think Um, (laughs) so and he also is quite a good chess player so you'll hear chess references um throughout how it came to be that the rook took the queen for my father you know i never did see a coyote in town though i kept suggesting so Spinning tails of lint gold eyes, a low-down slink to distract from the fact that I could not track how the rook's straight path could end in a hook, or how to calculate the area east of a hypotenuse. (laughs) No. And I still did not know how to add by abacus, though I brought you one on more than one occasion. But since I am no longer a young woman, it seems a good time to come clean. I did see a horse in a green velvet jacket and an executioner's eyeshade, a clamor of rooks on the grounds of the Tower of London, and in New York City they've got an aircraft carrier for show. But why didn't I tell you about that, about the blanched branches of the curly willow and the sky dimmed half dark and pink, and why didn't I tell you about when the cherry tree out front split in two? The tree was fruit barren but showy, so it was as pink as it would ever be. The March rains kept on, and it fell, bustle up, like a fancy woman in a parade. Why then didn't I, didn't I tell you that, in the midst of all that saying and not? Still, you shimmied up the ladder, father, oh father, knuckles creaking and pointing north, knees clanking against the garage, you shoveled the gutters. Even then, did you know of the 100 bulls Pythagoras ordered slaughtered in honor of the theorem, while I was down there holding the ladder and holding forth about the dreamed-up coyote bedding down in the peonies and slipping the Thanksgiving carcass off the porch? Did you know that he, Pythagoras, not the coyote, was reputed to have a golden thigh? I know you know it's bad luck to hang a calendar before January the 1st, to light three cigarettes on one match, to plant (laughs) seeds in the last four days of March. And you'll recall that Judas Iscariot was the 13th banquet guest. For that, Herbert Hoover wouldn't tolerate dinner for, more, for one more than 12. No, they hired a stand-in. Father, you goodly mathematician, do you believe me when I tell you that I never knew till now that squared, as in 3 squared is 9, as in 4 squared is 16, as in A squared plus B squared meant a thing? No. But slowly now, the rooks and you are gone silent in this frayed afternoon light, and I can see the roof's pitched peaks casting off shadows. Squares, ah, squared, as in nailed together four-sided solid square. And suddenly Pythagoras and his smoky bulls and his prohibition against the eating of meat and even beans and the shimmer off the roof and the use of the abacus to teach math to the blind, it all comes together. And I can see the chess rook makes a hooked move toward the queen, and a ladder leaning south is most certainly a sign of love. 
but it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it's not a wrong poem. Yeah. It's definitely a right poem. <laughs> that is to say, correct, <laughs> poetically speaking. Yeah. It's just a wrong math problem, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> yeah, at this point, I have to accept my fate, I think. <laughs> well, I think also, I mean, well, this is, of course, you know, any individual reader's response. It's about the father-daughter relationship in a way that isn't found often enough, I think, yeah. in our art. Um, there's plenty about the ugly and terrible father-daughter relationships, right. which unfortunately there are far too many of. Yeah. But the other kind, the kind we want, yeah. this is that. Yeah, that's right about lots of relationships in art, right? The, the ones that are complex, but, but essentially, you know, um, essentially whole. Yes. <laughs> we take for granted and yeah. don't write about or paint about or whatever. Not enough, anyway. <laughs> not enough. And yeah, especially not now when we need it. Yeah, right. Seriously. <laughs> well, so good. Thank you. You did it. <laughs> All right, next. Yes, and this last poem I'm going to read, um, the title of it is, is um, Ars Democracia, so it's a little bit of a poetry joke. Um, Ars Poetica meaning a poem about poems, and this is Ars Democracia, so a poem about democracy. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else weird in it. There's lots of weird stuff, but nothing that needs explanation, I don't think. Um, Ars Democracia. Who am I to wield this pen from the provinces, to wind in America's pearled promises, shuttle in one hand, splitting mole in the other? Who am I to topstitch hither to yawn, to name drop, name names, nataron, normalize for nativists, swallow what is noxious and what is not? I, who have not been elected by virtue of one man, one vote, or appointed and confirmed by the Senate, not even convicted by a jury of my peers. I am neither aristocracy nor intelligentsia, though I am covetous like both. I am yeoman and fishwife. I am taxidermist and tailor, indebted to soothsayers and oracles, though recognized by none. And what would the Chief Justice say if I confessed? If I cracked under oath, I pried these words from under the tongues of great black birds, then issued the order, devour them. If I declared it was I, I whose only sworn witness is the cold moon, the sole testimony on matters of both church and state. No, I am neither certified nor ordained to chuff my singed breath into the powdered curls at the back of your neck, to swoon at the sound of your name, to revere and lollygag, to invoke Article 2, Section 1, that's the presidency, <laughs> to invoke Article 2, Section 1. I know it will be said that I stole the pen, the maul, the blood-red thread, that I slithered in uninvited between the deserving and the descended. Yes, my memory is looped and addled, but it is no worse than that of the Chinook, swim-spent but still bashing its hooked head against Mr. Roosevelt's dams or the geese that forget to fly south and now circle in an insatiable storm. Mm. It is no secret that I have carnal knowledge of the overripe world, soft and split like the last plum left for rain. I am adept at jealousy and the kitchener stitch. I am a righteous descendant of peasant and bastard and Indian. I know the likes of me will never be called to stroke your bedclothes or guard your tin spectacles. Though I am too common to carry the torch, I am the one who, sleepless and alone, listens to the wind take issue with the trees, who witnesses the triumph of the seditious dawn, 
than hears the sky whimper and shift. Oddling that I am, yes, I am the one. I am the one kneeling in ink, gawking, hoping and hopeless, mumbling and rasping, but near certain the Republic will lurch on. My lips to God's ear. Hmm. There's a hopeful ending <laughs> for us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, yes. And of course, thank you for the reading. Thank you for yes. allowing me to yes. read. Oh, please, demanding it, <laughs> insisting upon it. And now I will ask questions, which is even more demanding and insistent. <laughs> All right. I shift these around a lot. Sometimes I change them. Sometimes I put in new stuff. But with you, I, the first one I want to ask is, what do you believe led you to writing poetry and prose? Yeah. What do you think there is in your personal history that made that happen, especially given that you're doing this other stuff as well? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, you know, as this new book comes out, I've been asked this question quite a few times and I'm thinking about it a lot mm. and I realize I mean first of all if you, I mean just the kind of most basic level lawyers are writers and so the idea <laughs> of you know the idea that it's a literary activity is that's a, they're not that separate from each other okay and um, because it's an it's an activity of interpretation it's an activity of of um of revering words uh, and and trying to sort through what they mean for the moment and so mm. I don't think those things are that that different um but i also think for me personally i just um i really love words as objects like i love the way they look i love the way they sound mm -hmm. um i love handwriting uh so i don't know if you saw the movie colette but um there was a movie that came out there's been many movies about colette but i think there there was one that came out maybe in the fall uh, so oh, the, no, the, I within the last year the most recent no and the most amazing for me, the most amazing thing about the movie was she's writing by hand uh, all the time all in this the time. movie. Right. And you know, you kind of know Colette's signature, right? That's yes, one of the of things course. we know about her. Yeah. And so just hearing the pen on the paper and That's yes, exactly. Yeah. And and there's a big scene where you think all of her manuscripts have been burned and um, <gasps> which is terrifying. The and very concept. <laughs> yes, right. And and so just um the kind of bodily sense of words in that movie was incredible both both because the words themselves have shape and and meaning but also just watching them come out of her was uh -huh. was amazing uh -huh. uh, and so i think you know that's from for as a even from a very young person that i loved the kind of objectness of it all uh-huh uh-huh and you know the, the way you began that answer when you were talking about the relationship between what lawyers do with words and what writers do with words and of course the fact that lawyers are writers and writers can be lawyers yeah. and so on um, I know that is all true however it is also true I think um, that not very many lawyers think about the words in the way that you are talking about them now yeah. um, and that's why so often um, folks who are not lawyers who may or may not be writers think about legal language for which there's even this little word legalese mm. you know that yeah. gives you the hint right there like oh it's not real language yeah. it's this stuff you know so it's a gift to you and to the rest of us that you are able to it's not even I was going to say create a bridge but it's not really a bridge it's a melding yeah, an integration done. or something. But, you something, know, if you think yeah. about, so there's some examples throughout time that we, you know, we should pay attention to. Of course, the biggest one is Wallace Stevens, right? Yeah, that, you know, that Wallace Stevens was a, a lawyer his entire career. Yes, and, never stopped. Um, and yet had this sense of 
language that was, you know, world building. Mm. Uh, Clearly, <laughs> right, and they had very few people in it, but um, <laughs> so that's really was really you know that was an really is a really interesting example. And then there's the uh, on the other side there's Oliver Wendell Holmes who used huh. language really you know um, in a way that was connective because mm-hmm. legalese right that means it's disconnecting absolutely and trying to you know yes. create status and, and um, so it can be it can go either way but it's just mm-hmm. you know it's not yeah. Let's hope that a larger percentage go that way, <laughs> where you're going and where those guys were going. Um, okay, so um, given that you did move in that direction, when did you first have, excuse me, your writing published? And how did that come about? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, when I was super young, before I went to law school, I had a few things published, mostly fiction, actually, which now mm-hmm. I can't even keep track of f- fiction. When, I, when I'm reading it, I have to make notes to keep <laughs> track of the plot. But, um, but, um, but then I didn't publish for a long time. So I, pu- uh-huh. I probably published for the first time as an adult in my early 30s, I would say. Uh-huh. So I didn't really put anything out there until then. Uh-huh. And then I was starting to re- publish poems. And, yeah. And so you, you, you were consciously saying to yourself, okay, now I want to do this. I want these poems I'm writing to be published, to appear in print. I guess. I mean, it's <laughs> like you write enough of them and then you just do because you're around other people who are doing it, you know? I th- okay. For me, I was so influenced by, you know, you're just hanging around with your friends who also are writers and they're sending things out. You're like, oh, I should do that. Uh-huh. So uh, I didn't really, like, decide, make a big, this huge decision, okay. but I was just in the company of people who yeah. were. Yeah, it was osmosis. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um Relatedly, one of those strange words, um, what would you say you get from writing poetry? What, what is being given to you? What is coming into you from this practice? Yeah. The lyrical. Yeah. Obviously, you write in various forms that are not poetry, but particularly yeah. that. Yeah. I think, so I think for me, um, it's such a state right so you I have to be pretty clear like you know physically emotionally clear uh-huh. to be able to be writing poems and uh, and so I think that's a, and, and I have to be in the state where I can see things that then add up to a poem hmm. and when I'm too clotted by the news by forms that have to go back to school <laughs> you uh-huh. know by the to-do list it just doesn't it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't come, really. Uh-huh. And so I think there's just this kind of sense of clarity. So, and I feel, and then I start to feel kind of guilty. Like, I'm just not, I'm not paying attention or, or I'm writing down the notes, but I'm never making it into a poem. So I think there's a way in which, um, and I, you know, I have to write very early in the day. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't, then I lose the voice. The voice is just gone. Mm-hmm. So interesting that you to me personally because I am also a morning and it's not just about poetry it's that most of the intellection of my 24-hour sets come even before I'm out of bed but you know when stuff just starts happening especially Mm. that little space between sleep Mm. and wakefulness things happen and I, I ask myself many mornings if I reach 
for the pencil or pen, I'll destroy this thing that's happening, yes. and yet I want to save it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then it goes on for several hours, and then the regular day happens, and it's not that yeah. anymore. So has that always been true for you, or has it gotten more Many so? years. Yeah. Many years that's been the case. Of course, much of the time, uh, until very, now that I'm a card-carrying old person, um, I can set my own times, but most of my life, I had to get up for X, Y, or Z, mm -hmm. whether it was my kid or my job or both. That's always yeah. fun. Um, now, it's a it's really a presence to me in the way that I was just describing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and clearly, you, you have similar. Totally. And yeah. I can, I don't know about you, but I can mm -hmm. find that once I've, you know, come into relationship whatever th with whatever that is, then I can you know, do new versions. I can make something out of it, but it's the impulse mm. is really hard to do at 2.30. For sure. And also, <laughs> um, uh, people speak of whatever happens, many people speak of whatever happens after the, what you just called the impulse, yeah. as revision. Yeah. And, well, in many ways, you know, revision, that is, we're seeing it again. Yeah. Um, but also, it's somehow given a lesser role, as if that's not, but indeed, I find that's incredibly stimulating, and much stimulation must be coming in for that to actually happen. It's not the same as the impulse. What would you say about that? Yeah, I, t I mean, I think that's actually fun, right, to say, what, I what are the f multiple forms this can take? Mm-hmm. Um, and to think of it more as versions of something um, or iterations of something rather than like, I'm going to change the comma, which is important. Like, I, I think comma. Oh, important. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but, um, we do not denigrate the comma, <laughs> um, right? But, but to say, oh, this is, there's all kinds of possibilities here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that takes me, I'm very slow. Um, and one of the reasons is because I'm always like, oh, I could start in the middle or you know <laughs> really the poem is really this two lines then this goes into something else or whatever mm -hmm. let's see about this yeah yeah um because you are one of the writers who works in different forms poems prose essays etc um i'm going to ask this one of my favorite yeah. questions do you think and or behave whatever that means for you, differently when and while you are writing in different forms, different genre? What's that like? Yeah, that's a good I mean, I'm always, I'm often writing both. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, not... You Working know, on not more than one minute, project. Yeah, no, yeah. I know just yeah. what you mean. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I do, but I do think they come from different impulses. Like, I th I'm just okay. much more responsive to the day-to-day -day in essays, especially in this book of essays that's coming out now that's really responsive to the political climate that was happening, uh -huh. was sort of happening. Yeah. Um, although more than half of it was written before the 2016 election. Um, uh -huh. So I think there's a way in which, as I was saying to a friend the other day, it's like, for me, um, essays are kind of in the middle world. Uh, so you're sort of responding to a kind of, there's a kind of materialism to them. Um, you know that it's it they're grounded in this table, this pair of shoes, you know this errand I have to run. So and, in a way that poems don't have to be, um, and um, which I think is, you know, interesting. Yeah, to say the least. And you sure. write in both genres, also. I right? do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What's the What's your answer to that question? Um, we change. My answer seems to be changing yeah. all the time. Um, but I definitely uh, have that thing about it's a mood difference and a situational difference. 
Um, I'm not saying lyricism is only in heaven and, you know, nothing like that. But there is something about, because I think this is because poetry is related much more closely to music than prose is, something about the rhythm both in my body and in my brain while I'm working on the saying the lines out loud or my favorite, or favorite is the wrong word, my necessary practice, walking around, walking around. I, I probably have marks on the carpet, you know, <laughs> walking around, saying it, chanting it out loud. So, so different from prose. Yeah. Um, so that distinction. However, I do think that what is called creative nonfiction now yeah. and what used to be and actually still is called the personal essay can often be quite lyrical yeah. but less musical I'm going to say even though that may sound like a contradiction what do you think yeah I agree I mean I don't know there's all these people who write these you know lyric essays that are really they look like prose but they sound like poems mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, yeah and I think I'm really attracted to that idea Mm-hmm. Um, because it has a it has a it has all this capacity to it, but I have never figured it out. Yeah. A similar thing. I just thought of this because I've been looking at some for different reasons that we need to think about or hear about right now. I have written many or a number of um, prose monologues. Now I don't write plays and I don't write movie scripts. Yeah. That was an unfortunate experience. The attempt. <laughs> I'll move on from that. But um, monologues do what you're just talking about and there's the sound of the speaker's voice moving with rhythm in my brain yeah so maybe that's a little closer yeah and there's a long history right of i mean in a sense some ways every poem is a monologue Mm -hmm. and so it's the i mean it just feels like the relationship is really close i think you're right about that okay moving on to another question are there subjects that you particularly want to to write about, whether in poetry or prose, that you think to yourself, I want to cover this ground. I want yeah. to address this concern. Does that happen for you or it, to you? Yeah, it does. <laughs> I mean, there are always some, I'm, I'm, one of the reasons I love being a trial lawyer is because yeah, I could get super involved in one thing and then forget about it. Like, just be, know every single fact, every single minute um, that happened. And then I'm like, I can't. And then two weeks later, I could not remember it. Um, uh-huh. And um, that's sort of similar to I'm a, I get super interested in something. That's all I think about. And it's tell everyone about it, and I talk about it constantly, and I read about it, and then I forget about, it, honestly, forget about it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I kind of go through those phases with things. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I oftentimes will have multiple like on the list, and some of them actually happen, or sometimes. I don't get to them before the fever breaks. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, I can't even stand that. I don't even want to think about that anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you want to write a cookbook. That's a persistent, ah, that is a persistent obsession. Oh, well, then no doubt you will. Yeah, that's the no one that, doubt you will. Um, that, like, even though I haven't gotten to it yet, I don't, like, I'm not sick uh-huh. of it already. Talk about a different form or format. And yet, as you obviously know, since you're thinking about this really seriously, there are cookbooks that are incredibly lyrical and beautifully written prose um, and, you know, delectable in in so many ways. Incredible cookbook. Yeah, cookbook as real art. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, cool. We will now. We're going to wait for Wendy's cookbook, (laughs) folks. Okay. would you say that your work has changed over the years in some notable way? Like, for instance, if you were 
um, teaching about Wendy Willis. <laughs> um, and you would say, well, Willis used to blah, 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 but more yeah. recently she blah, blah, blah. Is there something like that for you in the way you look at the body of work thus far? Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, they okay. sound like I think I'm writing a totally different poem, and then I'll have to read like I did today, and I'll think, oh, these all sound the same. So uh, so even though it's at the time I'm feeling like, uh-huh. oh, these are totally different from each other. Yeah. Um, in the end, the interior voice seems to sound the same. Uh-huh. The interior voice, because, of course, the interior voice is you. Yeah. Well, uh, it, sort of. It's the... It's a version of me. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. Please don't yeah. misunderstand. I don't mean you're only one thing. Nobody's yeah, but, only one thing. Yeah. But it's the it's the you know the thing that manages to get itself out there. Yeah. What about you? Like, have you do you has yours changed a lot? Well, I'm not sure. I think about this obviously, yeah. which is why I put it in questions to ask other writers. <laughs> yeah. What about you? You know, just like you just said to me. Yeah. Um, I think that the most obvious to me anyway, changes are the themes and subjects, which is why I asked that question yeah. about stuff you want to write about. And that um, is not always, by any means, generated by me. Stuff comes at me, is the way I feel about mm-hmm. it, or comes into me. That yeah. happened when I wrote a chapbook of poems about immigration. I had no plans for that. It yeah. literally muscled its way in. I was working on two other books, one prose, one poetry. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, oh, oh you know, you're going to have to do this yeah. right now. So um, that was a change, but it was a change in direction more yeah. than it was a change in voice mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but there are um, cases where people articulate why, yes, I used to ABC and yeah. now I XYZ. And that's what I'm interested in hearing from folks, if indeed that is their truth. Well, yeah. and you hear, you do, you <coughs> think about, you know, poets over the years who really, you know, sound like Adrian Rich. Like, think about, ah, like, Adrian Rich example. was a really different poet at the beginning of her career than she was at the end. To say the least. And so I think... And made public her yeah, changes yeah. in essays while she was writing the yeah. poems. Which is really interesting, oh, right? fabulous for us, yeah. the readers and <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, look, look, look. And then she, <laughs> yes, that's a wonderful example. Uh, Good, Wendy, thank you. Yeah, perfect example, in fact. Um, okay, another kind of thing. Have you studied spoken, read languages other than American English? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you so, say it like um, that? Well, because I, so I studied French from the time I was a tiny little child, like so I think first grade or something. Uh-huh. We, started a little, oh. we started a little French class and, um, yeah. and then took French all the way through high school. Um, and then I took Japanese in college. Mm-hmm. And then lived in Japan afterwards. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, two kinds of immersion. Yes, right. And so one of the things I think is great is there's nothing. No, I remember more J- Japanese when I go to France than I ever do in any other <laughs> country because because it's just like you're searching your brain for the for the non-English word and, you're, and so something pops up. But um, I love that. I, but I, your brain has okay. We're yes, doing this. Yeah, it's like other country, other language, but not necessarily like the same. Yeah, and you're flipping through them. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I am very, very interested in translation. Like one of the things when the Trump, when the morning after Trump was elected, 
you know, of course, my everyone's hysterical in my house. Mm-hmm. I have two teenage girls. Uh, they were like, you promised me. Oh. You said. <laughs> oh, you won't make that mistake <laughs> yeah. again. Right? And every time I say something, now I'm reminded that you said that yeah. Donald Trump was never going to be president of the United States, which I did say. Uh, my mom said to me on the phone, I'll never see a woman president. Uh, like, it was just, so there's, you know, like, we were a mess. And so I barely slept. And, um... I got up first, and I made a cup of coffee, and I was just sitting there staring at the fireplace. And one of the first things I thought was, I wish I spoke Polish. And I so much wished I could read those Polish poets in their own language. Wow, who I just had, got a chill you know, right? from you saying that. Like, who have gone through uh, all kinds of horrors. Yes. Like, I wanted the, the intimacy and the companionship uh-huh. of being that close to these poets. And... Um, who survived or didn't survive or whatever they did, but that they are their companions across time. Uh And And they, we already know, whether we can read Polish or not, they put that experience into their language. They did. Yeah. They did. Um, And the reason that I ask, I mean, although there are many things to say about this, some of which you have just said, um, but the reason that I like to ask that question is, I wonder what knowing, in your case, Japanese and French, where that is, if it is, in the American English you are using. The locution, the rhythm, do you find, do you think ever, oh, this is coming from that? Or if you look at it now that I'm asking even, Mm -hmm. what do you think? Any connections there? Well, for sure. There's tons of French in the first book, actually. There's a a fair amount of French in it. Um, And I think just because of my age when I started learning French, it's just more in my body than Japanese Uh because I was more grown. Yeah. And it's also just closer to English, right? Like Japanese is, a, you know, I don't know how much you know about Japanese, but, it, you know, it's, it's um, there are no deviations in pronunciation. So, so you, if you look at the word, I mean, if you look at the word, if it's phonetically spelled, that's exactly how it's said every time. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really vowel-driven um, rather than being consonant-driven. And so I think that even though I love Japanese, I, it makes me so happy when I hear someone speaking Japanese on the street or in a restaurant or something but um, but I think in my sensibility French is much closer mm-hmm. um, but I have read so so I'm on the board of Tavern Books which I'm uh-huh. which I think you probably know of oh, um, of course which is incredible right which so their whole for people for people out there if you don't know about Tavern Books go right now to their um, website because the kind of the two kind of things they do are um, translations and keeping books in print that are at re- either have been bringing out of stuff back yeah or risk of going out of print mm-hmm. and and I've read so many books th- through them and, and and from others that are um, that are in translation right now and I find it to be enormously comforting mm-hmm. to just go it's a big world out there it is indeed and it has more <laughs> than American English in the world of languages <laughs> yes it does yes. and I of course I mean which is why I asked the question yeah. I think whether we recognize it or not the inflection the effects, the whatever's happening inside of us when the other languages are there with the one we first heard, you know, yeah. um, 
something's going on there. So do you have other languages? I studied Spanish and yes. the rhythms of Spanish, particularly from Central and South America, mm -hmm. as opposed to Spain, um, are definitely in my head. Yes. And I'm not saying that if I'm on a bus, I can understand immediately that, oh, this person's uh, from Cuba, this other person is from Colombia. No, I'm not that cool. Yeah. But I know that there are serious differences. Yeah. And I think, oh, two different countries here, whatever they are, yeah. you know. And partly because so many people speak Spanish in the United States, I'm lucky mm -hmm. that the one that I've studied and read and translated um, is right next to American yeah. English and yeah. mixing with American yeah, right. English. Right, it really is mixing oh, now, Oh, unquestionably. It? Which is very cool. I'll say, yeah. So yeah. that's what, what it was for me. All right, now I have, you know, I have 611 other things to ask, <laughs> and we don't have enough time for 611. So... Um, Oh, here's one. Oh, oh, I'm glad I thought of this one right now when I was clipping through my notes because this is um, particular, particularly uh, relevant for you. What do you consider, think about, muse on, um, as the relationship between your work as a writer and the other work you do in your life? Yeah. Which would appear to be, of course, very different, although we've already talked about the law and language. But still, yeah. still, how do you think about the relationship between uh, being Wendy Willis this Worker yeah. and Wendy Willis, this worker, and various others, because you do more than a few things. Yeah, that's a hard question. I And I don't, I mean, I feel fragmented, to be honest with you, I feel fragmented a lot of the time, which uh, I'm sure. Gotta happen, I yeah, suppose. I think it's true for everybody, right? Like, there's just so few people who are doing one thing. Yes. And, um, Good I mean, point. particularly artists, right? So Good artists point. are often feeling. Um, like I walk into Kebu and I think, oh, I'm sure everybody in this room is doing, did 10 other things today besides this. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so you realize that everybody sort of feels that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things I think is interesting, though, is I think it's really important to bring metaphoric thinking to, to public life. Oh, I love that. And Say more. When I th well, I think there's just so many ways in which metaphor makes us more more than empathetic. It makes us more lateral in our thinking. It opens up doors to things. And so I think I do find that probably because I read poems every day. Um, <laughs> I will sit. You know, I'm sitting in some meeting about something, and the very first thing that comes into my head is a metaphor for whatever's being said. And so sometimes they're kind of random and ridiculous, mm -hmm. but but I also think that's one place where I think poets can really contribute mm -hmm. whatever they're do whatever they're doing, whether they're doctors or whether they're, you know, um, working at the bar their baristas or whatever. Like I just mm -hmm. think that that I think um, particularly American English is has a kind of the, there's a there's some grooved metaphoric paths. And if we can get off of those and think about some other metaphors, ah. um, I think it actually would change our thinking. Mm -hmm. Not just how we express ourselves, but actually how we think. The way we things. actually think. Yeah. And therefore, the way we will express ourselves, because we'll be expressing something quite different. Right. And seeing it differently. Yes. Because I think we start to think, oh, this is how it is, because the metaphor that's presented to us becomes the thing. Yes. Certainly, I think that is true politically yeah. uh, in terms of understanding of government and the history of the nation and the sacred documents, the Constitution and the Declaration, blah, 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 you know, or even just traffic laws. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Um, 
Hmm. Now I'm zipping. I'm skipping because <laughs> we don't have enough time to ask all of the things that would be cool to ask. Um, oh, I like this kind of question. Um, are there poems or poets or what I call poetry moments, um, experiences with poetry that are notable and important for you in your life, particular poets, particular poems, particular experiences as a reader or a listener that you can just give us a hit on? Yeah, that's a, I mean, there's so many, I wrote about Bly, um, and I, you know, I, as a young person, was so involved with Bly. Like I Oh really? It was before he became Robert Bly of the men's movement. The man it, in the woods. And um yeah. and so that's I I was really in the um sort of Jungian symbolism of Bly I was very taken by. And of course there's other poets who have that same oh, sure. He's not sensibility. The only one. Yeah. But I felt so spurned by him mm-hmm. when he, you know, when he became that other Robert Bly, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and I, I was really, sh- I was personally very offended, like he had done something to me personally, uh-huh. and um, so that's w- and I was really young. I mean, I was you know in college, I think, um, when that whole sh- shift happened, or right, you know, uh-huh. right around then. So, so that that's one thing I can remember. I also have a. Um, I remember exactly where I was when I read this poem, and this was as an adult. Um, I read this poet, Venus Corrigata. Do you know her? No. She's well, a, maybe I do. I read a long poem recently by a woman named Venus something. I bet that's her, because she writes these long poems, and they're yeah. they're very symbol-heavy. Yes. Oh, yes. She writes in French, but she's Lebanese. And, well, I was um, reading a translation. And Marilyn Hacker is her translator. The poet, yes. No so, problem there. <laughs> and, um, yes. So I remember I was in Elliott Bay before before Elliott Bay moved to their new location in Seattle. And this book, Nettles, had just been translated into English. And it's a side-by-side translation, so it's French and English. And mm-hmm. um, I felt like, oh, my gosh, I cannot believe you can do this with a poem. Like, I felt so excited by what she was doing. And... And now I realize that there's a whole set of French write people who write in French, but their their first language is something else, whether it's you know Farsi or whatever. Right. Um, and um, and that that are they're sort of like half novel, half memoir, half poem, and they're really symbolic. They're um, they're very the logic's all emotional, and I've, and I felt so excited by this that's great that is in (laughs) fact we're going to go out on that (laughs) because it's exciting to be able to have those experiences and then articulate them so all right well thank you very much thank you so much for having me judith oh a pleasure a pleasure thanks for listening folks whenever and wherever on this earth you are listening Um, Thanks to the net. Be sure to support your local independent bookstores, independent reading series, and independent radio. Good night. Hi, I'm Rick Mitchell. What did jazz artists Christian Scott Atunde Adjua, Pharaoh Sanders, Steve Turay, Terrence Blanchard, and Marcus Strickland have in common? 
one, they are all performing at this year's PDX Jazz Festival, and two, they have all been featured on my program, Jazz in the New Millennium. Each one-hour episode focuses on a living jazz artist, putting their work in historical perspective. The weekly show is syndicated nationally by the African American Public Radio Consortium, but it can be heard anytime on KBOO's website by going to the drop-down menu at kboo.fm, clicking on audio, then podcasts, and scrolling down to the Jazz in the New Millennium page. For the convenience of those who might be interested in attending one or more of these concerts, we have grouped the PDX Jazz Artists together into a special mini-season. That's Jazz in the New Millennium with Rick Mitchell at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor Arts for All Ages, a benefit to deepen intergenerational roots, on Monday, February 25th, from 11.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. at the Oregon Public House in Portland. The Cathedral Park Performing Arts Collective is Charity of the Day on February 25th at the Oregon Public House. The Art for All Ages benefit features music groups, activities, and games throughout the afternoon, followed by an all-ages jam session and an evening performance by Green Mountain Guild. Again, that's Arts for All Ages, a benefit to deepen intergenerational roots on Monday, February 25th from 11.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. at the Oregon Public House, 700 Northeast Deacom Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Kicked around since the start of Good evening. It's 11 o'clock, and this is KBOO Portland, and now it's time for the Holy Crowley Hour. Welcome to the Holy Crowley Hour, the radio show for folks who know how to negotiate the terms of a BDSM scene. For those of you into something a bit more vanilla, you might be asking yourself, what's the Holy Crowley Hour? Well, sometime several years ago, a KBU talk show caller made an accusation. She claimed there were several late-night DJs at the station who belonged to an Aleister Crowley cult. Aleister Crowley, for those who don't know, was a remarkable Englishman who lived from 1875 to 1947. He founded the religion of Thelema and styled himself a prophet, leading humanity into a new age of self-realization. He was also accused by some of being a Satanist 